Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Kellen and Alex Show. This podcast was recorded in July of 2020 with special guest Joshua Feibelman. Just an amazing podcast. This guy is off the charts smart. We get into so much stuff, liberalism, politics, the whole shebang. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this edition of the Kellen and Alex Show. And bam, we are live. Welcome to the Kellen and Alex Show, our 9,000th edition of the show. <laughs> We're talking about revolution. We're talking about youth, power, revolution. We're in a weird time. We're in a very, very weird time. And it seems like a revolution might happen sooner or later in this country. You never know. So I wanted to pull a quote from one of my favorite <laughs> Dostoevsky works. This is Demons. You'll also cool see it Dostoevsky. as... You'll also see it as the possessed, and uh, it seems like it was written, this section, exactly for our time, so I just want to pull a quote from it. In every period of transition, this riffraff, which exists in every society, rises to the surface, and is not only without any aim, but has not even a symptom of an idea, and merely does its utmost to give expression to uneasiness and impatience. Moreover, this riffraff almost always falls unconsciously under the control of the little group of quote, advanced people who do act with a definite aim, and this little group can direct all this rabble as it pleases, if only it does not itself consist of absolute idiots, which, however, is sometimes the case. (laughs) Absolute idiots. (laughs) (laughs) So in every period of transition, Dostoevsky saying here, and, and remember, this is written in late 1800s, right? So he's feeling this tension in Russian society between the old ways of doing things, you know, one of the main themes is belief in God, especially in the late 1800s. That was like the revolutionary thing is to not believe in God. You're believing in like a nation state. Socialist ideas are starting to pop up all over Russia. Also, <coughs> you write this word, uh, writes this word demons. And um, on the, let's say the psychological, the, <coughs> the mind state of these revolutionary type people, and here he's talking about in every period of transition, there's this riffraff, this people who don't really have an idea of their own, but are just waiting for some, let's say, chance to rise themselves above insignificance. And these people start to rise, but they're they're not the ones who have a definite aim. There's people who actually have definite aims that are trying to rile up this kind of riffraff to get their, let's say, agenda across or their their power games across. Yeah. I mean the interesting thing about revolution is that it's one of those things, those concepts where it's almost like a dominoes effect. Like one thing happens, the next thing happens, the next thing happens. It's constantly changing events that are, you know, uh, developing quickly. And you know, if we kind of look at the traditional concept of revolution, I mean, we're looking at basically a group of people um, basically challenging the political hierarchy and the political system. Like that's kind of, I guess, our, you know, understanding of uh, revolution, you know, basically many experts say the biggest revolution, the most bloody revolution in history was the French revolution. And, uh, you know, you have King Louis the 16th and you have all the people in the estates, you know, great, you know, storming of the Bastille, they raise up, they're so sick of him. And, you know, we're seeing something now where you have, let's take like the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, You know, you have just these people that there are some peaceful protesters that believe, you know, obviously, you know, black lives matter. And we all know that. And, you know, all lives matter. That's the thing that unfortunately triggers a lot of people. That'll get you fired. Uh, If you say that'll get you fired. Uh, But, um, 
the thing is like with this movement, we're seeing one thing after the other. And the problem, the problem that we have in society today is that when we think of revolution, we tend to think of violence. And the thing is like every revolution that we've seen, like the American revolution, the French revolution, the Russian revolution, we've seen violence. And I think that's one thing that we, it's kind of important to understand is like what Dostoevsky is talking about here is like, there's people like this riffraff. There's people that don't really know why they're revolting. They don't really <laughs> know why they're doing this. They're just following others. But there exactly. are people that actually, there are people that have motives that they right. do want to change and they're willing to do whatever they can to do it. Because they have um, actual definite aims and they can use the riffraff yeah. to, let's say, make it seem as, there, as though there's more people who actually yeah. think a certain way when in reality they're just playing with the emotions of people who are, you know, don't really have much significance or things going in their lives already. Right. And well, then the thing is like, yeah, I mean, basically like it's people that are, you know, so enraged by something that they are willing to throw away their senses and their and their, you know, awareness to something that they believe that they just want, they want to let their rage out. So they're really willing to throw anything out right. to join a movement and maybe they don't really know what they're doing. And so I think that's something that Dostoevsky's talking about is like, if you guys want a war, you better know what you're fighting for. <laughs> and these people don't. <laughs> and then the thing is like, if you're already established, if you have a family and you're, you're like well off in society, or something, you're, you're, you're going to risk a lot more, you know, if you're going to go against yeah. the whole system. The reason As why compared to somebody that's riffraff. just like dirt poor. Exactly. Yeah. That's the reason why the riffraff idea is like the people who you know, perhaps, you know, maybe they are disenfranchised, poor or something like that, but there's, a, 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 you know, people who um, haven't really made it or done anything, haven't really found a purpose for their life, haven't really gotten, they're the ones that can be, you know, with the aims of those in power, you know, trying to cause actual revolution, they can be the ones whipped up into a certain frenzy over, over different things, right? And then you enter into this period of transition, because when people start seeing the riffraff in public, and let's say the authorities don't really, you know, people don't speak out against it, then it seems like this is the new normal. The riffraff in the streets, you know, Chaz or whatever it's called in, um, in <laughs> Seattle, that's the new normal is just give up your streets, give up whatever to well, the revolutionaries. Because, no one will I stand mean, up to them. Like, and the thing too is, is that, you know, as we go through our lives, things change, you know, times change and you can't really you don't really have a hold of that. And so, you know, when we're seeing things like revolution, you know, times change. And so what happens is, is that you have people that follow this change and sometimes, you know, in a good way, they're, I'm not really saying, okay, it's hard to say that a revolution is a, is a good thing. If it, you know, like it could be a good thing, but historically we kind of have seen revolutions as, a bloody and violent thing that overthrowing because some people want this over that. Um, and so, you know, the whole thing with Chaz or whatever, where they're just blocking off the streets and nobody can do anything. Like today I watched a video. This cop was surrounded by all these protesters in his car. He was in his car and his car was on and he was surrounded by all these protesters and he just went, he booked it and he blew by hit people might've ran somebody over, but look, if he's, if his life is being threatened and there's people coming at him, 
I would do the exact same thing. I'd go straight through it because I, I have to do something. I can't just sit there. And that's kind of like the same idea that happens is people get so riled up in this and then they think, Oh, I've got to do something. I have to do something, you know? Yeah. And so that's, that's just, crazy. Did you see the, the Brooklyn, crazy. I think it was a Brooklyn cop who he was one of the, the police that went like viral for kneeling in front of protesters and stuff. Well, anyways, he was, he got sent to a protest. I think it was yesterday. And some guy with a cane came up, not, not an old guy, but a guy with a cane came and beat him with a cane, this police officer, for no reason, except for he was a police officer. They didn't find the guy, right? There's this, I, I want to get into more of this like revolutionary mindset and this idea of we need to like appease these people who are, you know, these riffraff causing these things. Oh, well, they actually have righteous, you know, demands and whatever else. Like their motives, this, this riffraff's motives. The, the motives of revolution don't work with appeasement. Like you can't, you can't just appease re- revolutionaries in this way because the the ultimate goal is the changing of the whole society. And so if you say, well, the whole system, yeah, they're angry and they're tearing down statues or something. Well, let's just let them, right? Well, that's going to lead them to okay. Now it's the next thing, right? If you apologize, right? So take Drew Brees, right? He um he said, I'm standing up for the flag, and I don't. You know, I, I, I love our flag. He didn't even say anything more than just like, I love our flag. And he got so destroyed on social media. He had to bend over backwards to apologize. He apologized like four different occasions. His wife even had to apologize for like no reason. And people still will hate him forever just for saying, I defend the flag. Once you take those positions and then you start the, the sorry train and the appeasement train, it's just going to be the next thing. Because unless you're on board with the whole revolution, you're not on the side. If you still think there's things we should preserve of the American system, then you're racist. Then you're yeah. supporting systemic racism. Further, you're continuing uh, a system that disenfranchises people. So unless you're not, you know, sympathizers are nice until, you know, but they're ultimately still the enemies, even if they're sympathizers. You can't appease them. There's no appeasement able to be made. Um, guys no, in chat, we are, we yeah. are watching chat. So if you have, have stuff to say, put it in the Twitch chat, but yeah, go ahead. So it's very sad because, I mean, we've gotten to a point where there's been so much tension and just turmoil that if you don't believe in something, like if, if there's this whole movement and you agree with the movement, let's say like a good thing, then like you're automatically labeled like already, like you said, Drew Brees, like he had, he said something. What did he say again? He, he, he I stand for the flag. Yes. He said, I stand for the fa- flag. Basically someone, I think someone asked him about Kaepernick or something mm-hmm. like that. And he talked about Literally. how his grandfather fought in world <laughs> war two. And he, you know, his parents come from mili- uh, their military uh, family, whatever. And he stands for the flag and he stands for America. And just everyone. He took so much flack. Yeah. Yep. And he had to, and and he went out and he apologized. This is the thing that I really like, obviously the hate and the vitriol and everything like that expected almost at this point. But the fact that he apologized like four different occasions, donated all this money, you're better off just taking a stance. So I want to read to you something really quick that I thought was very interesting. Um, if I can find it here. Um, I read it on, it was, I think, believe about the ancient Greeks. They said that basically um, 
if you're, if you begin like a revolution and you're going to overthrow something, then the reason for that had to be something like immoral in the system. Like there was this lack of morals. Um, and so I think that <clears throat> with these people that are trying to just giving him flack for saying, I'm standing for the flag. Like literally they're, I mean, they they don't, <laughs> Who are they don't these care people about anyways? morals. Yeah. They don't care. About they don't, they don't care about morals. They don't, they don't have, they don't have morals. I mean, literally somebody that says I stand for the flag, like they're not the ones that are doing the protesting. The people that are doing the protesting are the one that, the ones that are saying that they kneel for the flag. Those are the people that are protesting because they kneel down, first of all, which is wrong. I mean, and so... <clears throat> yeah, who are these people that have such moral superiority that they know, you know, the proper everything of how to deal with your fellow man? Um, yeah, see, here it is. It says, the ancient Greeks saw revolution as a possibility only after the decay of the fundamental moral and religious tenets of society. Okay. So basically, like what they're in, saying in a sense is of revolution they, back to let's say religion and, and civilization, or I think I think just they saw the they saw revolution as valid if there was a violation of moral and religious like liberties in society, like moral and religious things that uh, a, every human should be. Uh, yeah, it's endowed, a total degradation you know or mean? something like that, right? Okay, which revolution then would be valid? It would be a valid thing because. You are revolting against an oppressive society that is not treating you equally and takes away your religion. And think about this. About a year ago in California, the governor was going to pass a bill that said, in a confession, I don't know if you heard about this, Alex, yes, but in a big. confession, basically, the priest has to basically like he has to give up some of his rights of secrecy and what, what that is. And look, a priest should have an, a moral obligation. If somebody comes up to them and says, I've been abusing, I'm going to abuse these people or whatever, like these kids, the priest should have a moral obligation to report that to authorities. Um, now look, I don't think he has to sworn by, you know, his secrecy and the freedom of religion. But California was going to pass this law and they had to have like hundreds of thousands of letters were written to uh, stop the bill. And they did. And the thing is, is like when you have something that significant where you have a violation of freedom of one of your freedom, like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, that's when you see people really start to get into it. Like you're going to really see people, you know, just doing whatever they can to stop that, which is a good thing. Like the Greeks said, they saw revolution as valid. If there was a violation of your religious liberty and there was a violation of you know your freedom of expression, hmm. like I would rise up against that then too. It's time, if I was right? be, yeah. if that was being violated, I would, that, that completely validates a revolution. So we're going to bring yeah. in our resident revolutionary now, Joshua Feibelman. We're gonna see if he's uh if he's uh, able to get in on this Zoom call. Um, Want this peanut says konnichiwa, you magnificent bastards! You are the big Thank revolutionary, Mister Mister Kirian Fedorov, Joshua Feibelman. Hey hey, welcome Joshua to the show. Feibelman. Welcome to the show. What's going on, Josh? 
connecting to the audio. audio. Oh, he's connecting the audio. There you go. To speak of another youth full of revolutionary spirit. You've invited him on. <laughs> Can you hear us, Josh? Still working on his audio. Still working on his audio. He's a revolutionary. <laughs> he's, he's, a got revolutionary. A, he's got a revolutionary amount of books behind him. Look at that. That is a stack. <laughs> you know, he's a reader for sure. The screen is wanna, he's a reader. Yeah. If you want to know stuff, you got to read books. I mean, that's just Dude, the. Uh, if you want to know, if you want to know, you got to read. There he is. Let's see if he can uh, connect to us here. One second. Okay. He's revolutionizing. Want this peanut? Uh, tell us something in chat. Are you a revolutionary? Guys in chat, are you revolutionaries? Okay, I want to, going back to your point real quick, Josh, you, I, we still can't hear you, by the way. I just want to read this quote from Dostoevsky. Uh, the point about, like, who are these revolutionary people, this riffraff? Like, where did they get all their moral superiority? This is more Dostoevsky. What constituted the turbulence of our time and what transition it was we were passing through, I don't know. Yet the most worthless fellows suddenly gained <laughs> predominant influence, began loudly criticizing everything sacred, thought till then they had, though till then they had not dared to open their mouths, while the leading people, who had till then so satisfactorily kept the upper hand, began listening to them and holding their peace, some even even simpered approval in the most shameless way. This almost could be written for so our time. So all of a sudden, the most worthless fellows suddenly gain predominant influence. They begin loudly criticizing everything sacred. And the leading people don't say anything to the contrary and even make like appeasing efforts to them. Right? How is it that these, you know, that all of a sudden these Marxists and everyone else has all the moral superiority and high ground? Right. Yeah, I mean. Can you hear us, John? <laughs> there we go. I can hear you. Yes. How's that? Hey, there You're we welcome, go. There brother. he is. Welcome, too. You definitely are not part of those group of worthless fellows who gain predominant influence. You are one of us <laughs> counter-revolutionaries. We were just reading a, nice a selection. Uh, this is Marbles. He's, uh, he's our revolutionary <laughs> mascot, you know? Oh. There you go. There you so, go. <laughs> yeah, so, so how you doing, brother? Doing well. Doing well. Unexpected pleasure. You know, yeah. with, uh, with Dickens, I must say, I didn't have great expectations until about 20 minutes ago and Callan texted me and said, Hey, yeah, I, I saw him. Things. I saw him active on Facebook. I was like, dude, this is a smart guy. I think you philosophy or theology yeah. and catechetics philosophy, maybe? philosophy, HCC. Yep. Dude, you know, the, you know what they say is that they said at Franciscan HCC is the hardest major. I don't know about that. They said that. <laughs> yeah. I've certainly heard that. I think I think Jacob Schmiesing would beg to differ, but uh, or like engineering, I think that's. But that's it might be it might be the hardest arts major. I would venture yeah. to argue that at least. Do they write a lot yeah. more papers than like other yeah. majors? Okay, I think so. Papers I to me so. is like the check mark of what's difficult, at least with philosophy or whatever. You know, if you have to write. Well, for Josh, Josh, for you, you you write like crazy. So I write a lot. Yeah. Well, I think one of the differences though is to you don't take any core in HCC. So while a lot of people are taking those 100 level classes, like the 100 level history class, say they don't have papers, they've got a couple of like, you know, multiple choice tests or something. We take like our core is because we take from so many disciplines, our core 
is, you know, a 300 level history class, a 300 level English class. You know, I was with you, Kellen and Dante, you know, last semester, that was like one of our core English. We had three papers yeah. in that class, you know, so it's typical. But one of those peanuts says professor, professor Gaston would say it's challenging to people who don't know what HCC really is. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a joke. <laughs> Humanities and Catholic culture. It might be. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a tough major. Like I was, I was looking into it and stuff. Like I'm definitely not the, you know, the smartest guy when it comes to writing papers and stuff and all that reading, it's not really my thing. I'm better do I'm better like with, you know, in front of the camera and stuff, but like, saw you got that diploma the other day though, dude, I did, bro. I haven't opened it yet. No, really Mine has not opened. come in. Dude, what the heck? Dude, you, yours hasn't come in yet. No. Maybe you haven't graduated. Dude, if that happens, I did literally everything, man. Alex Denley, we you I, I'll become a revolutionary. Core. I'll 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 get out there. I'll be you know <laughs> protesting you not having one, a diploma. You missed one just like core, the rest of this pay, riffraff, you know. You have to pay full tuition for your one core class, forty grand. So Josh, to get us on the revolution train once again, let's do it. Let's we were talking. It. We we just pulled a quote. This is from. We were talking about this earlier, actually, in the group chat of of demons Dostoevsky's. I I actually think. Yep. Don't tell Jacob Schmeezing this. I think this is better than Crime and Punishment. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, Brothers is top. Brothers, and I also have that here. I just love yeah, I want to get a shirt with here it this is. Here it is. Like on the front. Yeah, here look at it. It's awesome. It's dope. Um, yep. But he, basically, the, the thrust of this book, I would say Dostoevsky like, predicts the Red Revolution before it happens, like 30 years before. That's kind of what it feels like here. He gets into, let's say the psychological, the societal dimensions of how do you get, let's say, a revolution to start. And, and one of the main characters, oh, uh, Stepan Trofimovich, name, he's kind of an older... Um, good name. What's that? Yeah, great good name. Good Russian name. Yeah, Trofimovich. He's got, good, he's got great names. He is Always. this kind of older professor guy who never really made anything of himself, but talked a lot. So probably what I'm going to end up being. Um, but <laughs> he didn't care about his family. He didn't really pay much attention. He had a child, um, but he just said ideas, didn't really care about stuff. And um, there's this disconnect in the book between the older generation who seems to just think everything's just going to stay the same and the younger generation who's disgruntled and wants everything to change. That seems to be like the general um, thrust in demons. Um, but he, he speaks of here um, that I'll just quote it again. In every period of transition, this riffraff, which exists in every society, rises to the surface and is not only without any aim, but not, has not even a symptom of an idea and merely does its utmost to give expression to uneasiness and um, impatience. Moreover, this riffraff almost always falls unconsciously under the control of the little group of advanced people who do act with a definite aim and can direct this little group, this rabble, as it pleases. It only if only it does not itself consist of absolute idiots, which, however, is sometimes the case. <laughs> so basically, is what he's getting at there is the people, like sort of the masses, so to speak, are those the riffraff? And then he's yeah. talking about sort of the oligarchs, so to speak, who possibly have a direction and will take sort of control and guide the upheaval to some sort of self-satisfying, self-serving ends. Yeah, I think that's what he's getting at, right? It's kind of like people who are either disenfranchised or haven't really made much of their life who, you know, just insignificant in this, this situation. Um, hmm. 
mm. they end up getting guided by people who do have, let's say, definite revolutionary aims. Yeah, okay, and that makes let, sense. Let's say you you create certain emotional, let's say, um, reactions in this riffraff, and then all of a sudden they have like a purpose for life, which is overturning a corrupt society and system. You know, it, it does remind me of, I don't remember who said this, and I think it's been said in multiple forms, but just the classic for every age of young people, the young think that their times are the worst of times and that they are the wisest of all generations. You put those <laughs> two things together and it just, it, it's exactly what Dostoevsky is predicting. And They think they're the wisest. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing is like, they think, you know, I'm young and I know everything and these old people don't know anything, right? Um, that's kind of, let's say, a precondition for this revolution spirit. Yeah, absolutely. A- absolutely. Huh. <laughs> the puns begin. Absolute. The puns begin. Whatever, uh, that be- whatever that absolute is. Right, right. Always. So, I mean, and, and Kellen po- pointed to this as well. Like today what we're seeing with um, the protests and especially with cancel culture. We talked. Did you see the Drew Brees stuff? No, I haven't seen this. I okay. saw it posted in the chat earlier and I didn't get a chance to look at it. So he, it was just a random podcast and someone asked him about kneeling for the flag and Kaepernick and whatever. And he said, yep, I'm not going to kneel for the flag and I support the flag. He mentioned like yep. his grandfather was in the military and he's like, I support America <laughs> and whatever. And he got flack from literally everyone yeah. and just got demolished online, demolished on social media. And he, he even like, he's, He's donated tons of money to, you know, all these different causes in New Orleans. He's like the total New Orleans. And then all of a sudden, all of like the fans and everyone in New Orleans was like completely flipped on him for just supporting America. And what really got me is he spent like a, two weeks on a sorry party, like a sorry train, just apologizing. Oh, wow. So he indulged you know, it. He indulged it. Yeah. And we were talking about this earlier. Like, you can't appease these people. Of course not. It wouldn't, I mean, their whole agenda is in some sense to keep sort of the, the destabilization going and they need some impetus to do that. Right. And so, of course, I mean, I would, yeah. Like the ultimate aim is revolution. And if you're not on the side, then you're not. Right. That, that, right. Then you're a demon, you're an enemy, you're whatever. I mean, like, to me, the, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, I don't understand, it doesn't just doesn't make sense to me that somebody would get so mad at somebody else because we've always stood for the flag. It's not like the other way around where Drew Brees was doing something completely different than what we've seen by standing for the flag. The newest thing that we've seen is people kneeling for it, which was started by Colin Kaepernick. And so to me, it doesn't make sense why he would like, not even on the basis of like change. Like it's a different thing. It's like, what's the point of giving somebody flack for doing something that we've always done that nobody has ever before Colin Kaepernick really criticized anybody for. I've never heard of any, I've never heard of any movements before Colin Kaepernick criticizing people for standing for the flag. We just haven't seen it. You know, like in professional sports games, we haven't seen, you know, tweets anywhere saying, Oh, you stood for the flag. You're a racist or something. Like we've never seen this before, and you're, it sucks that Drew Brees apologized. I wish he didn't apologize. Yeah. Maybe I he mean, was that's the worst part. I mean, maybe he was getting like serious. Maybe he got death threats. I don't know. Maybe he <laughs> did. If he got a death threat, then 
still, I wouldn't apologize, but <laughs> I mean, look, he's got, he has a family. I don't have a family. So, I mean, but what I'm saying is like, it, you don't want to endorse that because it only fuels the fire of the revolutionaries. I mean, can we even call this a revolution? I mean, we were, Josh, we were talking about, you know, right before you came on, I was saying how the ancient Greeks believed that a revolution was valid if there was a violation of like religious liberty and there was just a violation of morality. Yeah, a violation morality. of justice, basically. Violation of justice. So, Josh, the question is like, how, how can that, you know, that, that's not a valid reason because for those guys to criticize him for standing for the flag, like that's not a violation of religious liberty or like that's not a violation of, of mm. justice for him doing that. So why would they, why is that even considered a revolution, even for people that like don't agree with it? Well, yeah, that was a big, big, uh, lots of things. And I'm just thinking lots of things. I know that was so eloquent. One of the, one of the things that it kind of makes me think of is something that Dr. Weicker talked about in one of the classes I had with him last spring. And he talks a lot about sort of the underlying structure and planning of such movements like BLM or, you know, you name it, the transgender movement, the, you know, homosexual marriage um, act movement. I mean, all these things have been going on for you know 50 years 70 years and percolating up through through time and he says that the problem with our side is that we're always reacting and we're never mm -hmm. anticipating such things because we don't see them coming because they're so subtle and they're so brilliant brilliantly devised that then we're left here we sit here and we see the sort of active effects and then the media picks that up and blows it up and then we sit here and go whoa, what just hit us? And we have no idea where that came from. Hmm. And we're sitting here reacting and going, well, this isn't rational. This isn't reasonable. Of course it's not. But the problem is you can't use reason to argue with irrationality. So hmm. we can sit here all we want and say, that's not just, that's <clears throat> irrational. That's you know crazy, but it's not really going to do that much because it's just reacting. And instead, we need to somehow be proactive and, you know, see these things as they advance and get informed on them before they hit the streets and the riots right. happen. Like anticipating that type of movement before it happens. And so you can properly right. react because by the time you're like, oh, that's just crazy. You're already like sitting back. You're on the defensive already. Right. Exactly. Or these people have like stepped in and taken the offensive. That's correct. How? So, okay, but how do you, let's say, anticipate, let's say, um, these type of yeah, that, revolutionary or protests? Well, I mean, because we had it sparked, let's say, by, you know, the George Floyd killing, which we've covered on the podcast. And, and I don't know if yeah. you've seen, like, the full video, but it's, it's you know, it's mm -hmm. really graphic, really terrible or whatever else. But did anyone, could you anticipate from a random video, right, which, I mean, it could have been that guy could have died with no one videoing it and there would not be this protest or anything else. Sure. But like, how do you, let's say, anticipate that type of reaction? You're right. And that's a, that's the million dollar question. I, I, I mean, honestly, I don't have a great answer because all right, a couple things. One is a lot of the things 
that do happen, they involve big government and then big business, which basically is the same thing, if we're being honest, in you know our, our uh, country today. Mm-hmm. And so because those are the entities which have actual power to do things, they're the ones that are targeted you know, by such movements, it's, you know, it's people that, that have money, you know, and then influencing the people in government that have, you know, the capacity to sort of enable such things, you know, over time. People who are already and established, those are the targets. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's the people that, yeah, it's the, mostly the people with money, because money in this regard is basically power to right. a very large extent. And so I guess the question is, Really, I would rephrase it sort of to as Catholics, you know, what are we what are we to make of it in that one of the things that we have to realize is modernity is not conducive whatsoever to Catholicism. Like the two things are antithetical to each other and they're not. So I think one of the things that we do a lot is we say, well, let's figure out what's good in modernity and baptize it. And I just don't think that that can work. Um, you know, I Gaudium know. Gaudium and Spess would disagree. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm putting, you know, the, uh, what, what is it? Um, yeah, the Vatican II document, the Church in the Modern World. It's, it's, yeah, it's more or less yeah. a sanctif- you know, baptized modern world and hopefully right. it'll, it'll work, you know? Well, yeah, yeah. And see, the thing is, is it's not that we can't, sort of um we can't we can't it's not that we can't go out and sanctify the temporal sphere i mean that's what you know I've, i i keep wanting to tend back to this book um by jones that i'm plowing through i'm almost done with it now but we've talked I about get that so attack. bad here, here back put that up at the camera again so we could yeah, sure. all see it before Guys, church, before and state. church and state <laughs> let's go honest to goodness the best 27 dollars i've ever spent in my life it's not even there's nothing else like it because it is so coherent as a little tangent, but he's so coherent and he basically fills in the parts of the vision with such a wonderful contrast between modernity, church and state, modern categories, sovereignty against the way in which the social order was during the time of King Louis the Ninth um, and the popes during that time especially Clement the Fourth, Urban the Fourth, um, a few others. But he does such a good job of explaining why modernity is a problem and why it's absolutely antithetical to Christian Christianity, Catholicism, and how its principles are intrinsically unbaptizable to a very large extent. So, you know, sure, Gaudium it says would say that, but I'm not sure that that's... I mean, I guess I would. But it's not, have. let's say, possible or or. Um... I don't understand how it's possible. I yeah. think Gaudium and Spes is perhaps it's been a little while since I've read that, but you would be a little more familiar with it because I know you just wrote your thesis on Vatican uh, Vatican II. But I, I chickened um, out of writing it on Vatican II. By the way, Kellen, is there a background noise? I'm getting a little static from you in the back. In me? me? No, 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 Kellen. No. Maybe a little bit. It's just like. Can you try and reconnect your audio? Just like turn it off and turn it on again? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Different now? Same? Yeah, I think it's 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 fine. I just wanted to check. Okay. There it just random static. <laughs> right. 
Um, sorry, I derailed it. Got him is best. Yeah, I mean that's the you big. Um, that's the big question of how do you, um, how does the church approach approach mod, you know, the modern world? And I think this goes to your anticipation point. If you have an approach that, from a Catholic perspective, that the modern world is basically good, which I I would summarize. I mean, you could summarize Gaudium et Spes. Um, this is the um, pastoral constitution from Vatican II on the church in the modern world. You can kind of summarize it as, we the church think the modern world is good, and we're going to try to do our best to take that perspective and then orient it towards Christ and the church, right? But I think yeah. if you take the modern world as basically good approach, you're not going to anticipate, like you're talking about, and being on the yeah. offense of anticipating bad things occurring. Let, let's, take, let's take the shutdown stuff, right? Um, so in California, King Newsom, our supreme overlord, um, the the love of our hearts, the one who we owe our total fidelity and allegiance to, has declared liberal, once again from his high loser. chair, from the his liberal <laughs> loser and communist. Indoor restaurants, you can't sit inside in restaurants, and <clears throat> all churches shut them down again. Can't have indoor services. Now we've gone through months and months and months of just. Whatever King Newsom or our government says, the church will comply with. We, for like the first time in you know church history, did not have an Easter season. Um, yeah. None of these things we anticipated. And I, and and I think this goes to your point. Why don't we anticipate the state doing these? What I would classify them as breaches of um, Catholic rights. Why didn't we anticipate these things? The fact that right. what if the government told us to shut down our churches? By the way, that's happened all throughout church history. I mean, Roman persecutions, different persecutions in other places. Sure. It was on. It's ongoing in China, right? Now it's kind of different because, like, Pope Francis and now Mister McCarrick, then Cardinal McCarrick, brokered the deal to recognize the the Chinese Catholic Church, the Communist Catholic Church. Um, but like, rep- state repressions of the church have gone on throughout history. But now that we've taken this approach of governments are basically good, modern the modern world's basically good, none of these bishops or anybody or any laity are really standing up and opposing the fact that we're having yeah. shutdowns. And I think this goes to your point. We're, in no, we're not anticipating that because we just have this fiat belief that the government's good. Mod, modern world is good. Exactly. And that's where I would want to push. I'd say all right, you make the claim, and that's a big one. The modern world is good. What's good about it exactly? And how is it, how is the social order especially built in such a way that's conducive to salvation? Like, show it to me. Because I don't see it. I certainly don't see it, especially, again, it's really easy. See, this is why I think this book's so good. Because before I read this book, I'm almost done with it. So I'm not quite there, but I've gotten through enough that you really got the vision after reading about the first two hundred pages or so. Um, so sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Josh. Uh, yeah. Kellen, can you could you actually leave call and then rejoin call? I think your mic's just yeah. messing up. Okay. Get him out of here. Get out, get Kellen. All right, Josh. Perfect. No, now we no can worries. just. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But I, but I think oh, the oh, thing is, back in here. Sorry, guys, for the the audio issues. I think he just had a lot of background noise. Um, but go ahead, Josh. Yeah, no worries, no worries. So I think what the thing is is, for example, over the first three years, kind of of my education at Franciscan, I've come into contact with all sorts of ideas and all sorts of texts and all sorts of 
things that are behind the modern world, the things that are the foundations of the modern world, whether they be Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Different thinkers, different ideas, different historical events in Europe, whatever. But I never really understood what a Catholic social order was. And so I was sort of left to think about all the things I'd learned and figure out, okay, what in this is good? What in this is salvable? And like, what can we, with these pieces, what can we make out of that that's most conducive to a Catholic social order? And now that I'm reading this, where he proposes an entirely different order, like entirely different, suddenly I'm starting to see that what we have, you can't make a Catholic social order out of the pieces we've got. Like, it's not going to be a coherent puzzle. It doesn't Mm. fit. And so that's where I think perhaps the problem is to a certain extent, you know, and again, I... Wait a second, Josh. Are you... A revolutionary? Oh, Could this be? What? Don't say it. Don't, don't say it out loud. This, this is the thing. You talk to, to, you talk to Jones. Like You're like, Jones, I don't know if you know, but like, this is very revolutionary what you're talking about. So Yeah, I'm not sure he knows that. Oh, I think, I think, he, know, I think he knows it. I, I don't think, know. I think somebody might need to tell him before he gets apprehended, you know? We should just send him this podcast, you know? So, yeah, I mean, we might have to. So, okay, getting on our own revolution kellen uh they're trying to let's say the left the black lives matter protest you want to reshape america to somehow solve racism by equity and um inversing the you know white hegemony with a minority and then you know minority well let's let's make uh america work for minorities to the disenfranchisement of the people who have disenfranchised us before the white people and yeah. whatever and change the system and redo America according to Marxist policies and ideology. Now that's kind of their revolution, right? And then we have like keep America, which I think that's what I'm going for, you know, let's keep America. But then there's like, we're getting to another one and Josh has pointed to it here. Another kind of revolutionary idea that our modern way of setting up society and modern way of, the church has tried since Vatican II to, let's say, baptize a modern, you know, a modern social system, a modern way of governing, modern way of economics, and uh, has tried its best. But these modern systems have always, you know, attacked the church, and uh, they're not oriented towards salvation. And we have people like, especially a good number of philosophy theology professors at Franciscan, and then specifically Dr. Jones's book here, that say, no, actually, we can't just baptize this. The best implementation we've had of this is the Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages with King Louis IX, and we need to reshape society according to that mode, which I think is about equally as revolutionary as, let's say, the complete other side in the sense of uh, difficulty of implementation. Absolutely, yeah. Sure. Thoughts on that, Kevin? I just, you know, when we talk about like trying to change society, I mean... The Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, look, they're using violence as a main determining factor of their revolution. We're not in, we're not in the 1700s anymore. We're not in the 1800s, you know? We're, we're in the 21st century where we have, for example, 
people tearing down statues. And then you have President Trump, who sends probably 100 armed soldiers to guard the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, these guys are with full on machine guns and they will take anybody out. So what I'm saying is, is like I'm saying we're in a different time now where we have legit people that will take action and they will. We're in a point now where we have people that are not afraid to stand up for what they believe and use righteous force against other people. You saw that photo of the people in Texas, a hundred guys lined up with masks, skull masks. They got machine guns on them. They said, if you get any closer to our business, we won't hesitate on blowing you to smithereens. Like we didn't have that back in the 17th century. Or the 16th <laughs> century. We didn't have any of I that. I shall smite the I upon my sword. I mean, the English I mean, <laughs> war in the mid 1600s was. <laughs> but look, we don't have guys with automatic weapons that are, I mean, we have that now. We have that now, but like, what I'm saying is, is that society has changed. And if you're going to base your movement off of violence, because look, let's face it, these guys in the Black Lives Matter movement, they would love to use violence against other people to get their point across. And so we're at a point now where there's people that will say, don't get any closer to me or else I'll do you some serious harm. And so what that does is, is that it makes it a lot harder for those people to implement their, I guess, revolution. And so. Yeah. People standing up to it, right? The people, you have people standing up to it. You have a large amount of people who think that we need to just, you know, give in to the demands, do a kind of Drew Brees, sorry train, uh, adhere to cancel culture. And this is one of the things that cancel culture has become corporate culture. It's a real, it's been a real difficulty <laughs> of you speak out against stuff, you know, and you get fired. Okay. So Barry Weiss, Josh, I don't know if you saw her resignation letter. She was an op-ed writer. Oh, she considers herself, she considered herself. Yeah. Very good. Op-ed writer for the New York times. She considered herself a independent, not really conservative leaning, even just kind of like in between independent in between. She's been, you know, writing for a long time, long time journalist. And she resigned from the New York time times because she was getting harassed all the time about not being left enough and about giving a platform to people who weren't part of the agenda. And she totally calls out the New York times and says, it's since since 2016, the Times and, and these other people have proven themselves completely separate from public American opinion because they're off in their own space where they think the U.S. is a certain way, right? Where in a fact, in fact, they couldn't anticipate Trump winning. They didn't anticipate all of um, you know real American spirit and all this type of stuff. And they're on their leftist propaganda games and she had to resign because she wasn't left enough she didn't fit the narrative enough she's an independent in the middle so she couldn't exist in a space um she she couldn't you know exist in a space with these revolutionary ideas because it doesn't allow for freedom of thought or freedom of discussion or debate sure 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 yeah there's no go ahead go ahead josh Oh, no, I I was just going to respond and kind of hammer home a point you were making uh, about about the violence, because this is another excellent point that, again, goes to the heart of Jones's book, is where he contrasts 
the Christian or the Catholic social order under St. King Louis IX versus the one that we have today in terms of sovereignty. And what he explains is for sovereignty, the end is a state that has a monopoly on violence. The end of the Catholic social order is the business of the faith and the peace. So basically it's a Christian or Catholic cosmology that basically is the foundation and the root and the source of everything that that society and that order is. And the king is subservient to that, like the laws of justice and to the fact that he plays a role in the line of the Davidic um, king line of kings. And the same thing with the Pope and his apostolic role. And they worked together, right? There wasn't church and state, but they, so they weren't competing for sovereignty like most modern historians would read into the, the, the primary sources. Hmm. Instead, they were working together to achieve what was called the peace, which was the end. And it was basically a social order where salvation was worked out in the temporal material world leading up through the spiritual and the sacramental and the incarnational up to salvation for the soul, for souls. As opposed to today where we live, you know, with, with basically with Hobbes and his model where people are naturally kind of like Calvin, you know, they're depraved, their life is nasty, brutish and short. And so you need a contract to make any, to have any stability in society. And eventually that contract takes on higher and higher forms until it it's governed sort of by the sovereign who's outside and above it. So the sovereign is the highest thing. And he basically has a monopoly and a right to do violence. And it does away with sort of the right to do, to have conflict or violence in the private realm and of individuals, because, you know, that's why with private property, you go and, you know, you're on your neighbor's lawn and they don't like it. They'll call the cops, AKA the sovereign or his delegates, and they'll come and take care of it. So there's no ability necessarily and, and to, to do violence in that regard. But the point is, is that violence is seen as the natural fabric and state of the social order. It's not peace. And in the Catholic kingdom of St. Louis IX, it was understood that it was peace and it could work and that, and it did work. And that's the point. So when we see it as violence, as sort of the fabric of society, that's a huge problem because that's why you're going to get stuff like this. Because what I would ask the Black Lives Movement, put aside whether or not we debate and say, oh, you know, are they, you know, is it a good movement? Is it a bad movement? Blah, blah. Put that whole thing aside for a second and say, what is your goal with the movement? If you could have the ideal society, if you get what you want, what does that mean? Like concretely, because I could give concrete examples. Um, Jones basically says there's 5,000 or more cases in parliament, in the literature where, you know, explaining the ways in which the peace was enacted, which is like a ton for that time. I mean, that's a lot of sources for back then. So you can demonstrate that the peace worked. So if you take the same thing and say today, all right, what are you going for, people? Like, what does it concretely look like? What is your social order? I don't know what they would say. I'm not entirely sure. And that's my problem with the whole thing is I'm going, so what are you trying to do exactly? 
you know. Have them. So I mean, one thinking. So, Josh, where did that change come, though? When in time did that change come from the goal is peace to the goal is violence? I mean, that's really easy. It's basically, it, at least, I don't know a ton about the history where these things changed because I haven't read up on that. But for certain, in principle, Machiavelli was by far the first to come up with the idea preliminarily, and Hobbes took it and just ran with it. I mean, his entire, like, here, let me see. Where's this at? Uh, Consult the stacks. Consult the library. All right. There's your picture. Hey, it's going. <laughs> it, that's, that's the sovereign. And I don't know if you can tell on there, but basically those are all individuals, so to speak. Oh, that's wow. Oh, wow. That's very cool. funny because I want a t-shirt of that. Right? It's yeah, I know. like I want, yeah. the body of Christ in verse. Wow. That's, yeah. that's pretty nuts. <laughs> that, like, that's, that's literally what that was designed to be. So when you think about that, that that's basically what it started, at least in, Prince, in theory. Well, see, and like, of course, ideas have consequences and they trickle down. We're going to take a, guys, I'm sorry to interrupt. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. Here's another <laughs> revolutionary. We're back. The quickest break in broadcast history here live with the Fives, <laughs> Mr. Josh. And uh, he was just showing us the image of the sovereign, according to the Hobbes whole conception. And is uh, this is what we're in. I, I do want to go back to Kellen's question, though, of, of the, the switch. Um, how did we get to from a, let's say, as Jones was saying, a society which is based on peace, cooperation of the church and government all towards salvation? How did that degrade to the point of violence and assenting to the sovereign through contract? You want me to? Yes. All right. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Because basically, I mean, that is such a monstrous question because it takes so many aspects and so many threads that move through history in different ways, shapes, and forms. So again, you know, I'm not a PhD and even probably five PhDs wouldn't be enough to know the ins and the outs of all these things. But basically, you know, a few things, one being, like I was saying, the political philosophy that came that basically said that God, you know, isn't sort of the sovereign, isn't uh, the capitalist, the one who has, you know, all power from which, you know, it is, it is dispensed and granted to us. And so, you know, Machiavelli is certainly the first to kind of say that and to undermine morality, to say justice isn't something that we owe and some uh, isn't necessarily something that the king should owe. You know, Hobbes, of course, takes it and runs with it. So you have that, but then you also, alongside it, have a very quickly changing conception or anthropology. Um, yeah, conception of the human person in some sense, because another huge part of it, which I've said a couple times implicitly, but the notion that human persons are social by nature is a, I, I like, I'm still trying to get my head around it, but I'm realizing that that is maybe one of the biggest points I could possibly try to hammer home somehow, way, shape, or form. Because the way in which we view it today is there's sort of two sides. There's either the individualist side or the collectivist side. And 
you don't really have an in-between. So the problem is if you do anything that isn't strictly individual, even like at, say as a conservative and you're seemingly undermining the individualist narrative, which we would be doing by this very conversation and Jones absolutely is doing by this book, they would say, oh, you're a communist. You're a collectivist. That's the and only that's other option true. for them. There's, there is a third way, but the problem is we don't see it because, again, the way our society is structured, there's, mm-hmm. only, there's only one way. And so, you know, there's so many things that get us to where we are in mm-hmm. terms of capitalism, in terms of the vision of the human person, in terms of sort of the, the fall of the Catholic Church, you know, from its influence and even the fall of the vision of the cosmos that the Catholic Church provided, which absolutely was necessary to make this society possible. It really was. It was indispensable. And, and so another thing being for sure the, the kind of decline of the family, that's another huge thing because, well, I don't know if I should go into this, but basically because the family, I was reading an article by uh, Mark Barnes today, a good friend of Dr. Jones, and he was explaining how the family is that which, that entity which is completely antithetical both to collectivism and individualism, Hmm. because in it, you don't see, and and it's opposed to sovereignty, the entire liberal project, because in it, you don't see violence in in the supreme sort of ruler as the father or the mother but what you see is complete subordination to the weak so to speak na- namely the children like your entire life is consists of basically serving the needs of of your children until they're old enough to be able to exist on their own right. and that is part of the entire underpinning of the social teaching that again underlied the peace because the social order was based on everyone getting their basic needs met and society made sure to make to make that happen uh you know in the middle ages and we don't have it anymore and that's that's one of the reasons why liberalism has to destroy the family like the family is antithetical to liberalism to sovereignty to the whole whole mission and their whole vision and their whole cosmology because it flies in the face of all of their, their precepts and their principles. Mm. I, I mean, it, it's so interesting to me, you know, especially just like what you were talking about, you know, how like liberalism and, and how they want to destroy the family, like the family, like Alex, you said, and you drilled this point down. is like the heart of America. If you really think about it. And like, that's something that, really we need to preserve secondly is like this transition is so it's to me it blows my mind because it's a complete concept switch our point we're trying to get across we're going to do it through peace and now we've come to this point where we're going to do it through violence i mean it's a complete it's a complete switch It, it it's like it doesn't make sense i mean and i think i think like we've been saying, probably the reason is, is that, you know, times change and things get different, but that doesn't justify using violence over peace. I mean, they're the complete opposite. So there has to be something that happens 
that tells well, us. The point, Helen, is it does make sense. To right. interrupt you real quick, the point is, is it does make sense when you consider the change in the anthropology, because in the Christian society, persons weren't seen as completely depraved. They weren't seen as able to be perfect. But and I think Alex, you would have good stuff to say on this. They understood that there was grace and that it worked and that it could perfect nature to a very large extent. Whereas, again, when you look at Hobbes and his state of nature, literally, I mean, he has it right there in that book that I just pulled out a minute ago. He basically says, every man is against every man. And you're going to wake up in the morning with bricks in your window. And for lack of cars in his time, your car tires will be popped and your bread will be stolen. And it's every man against every man. And the only way to get out of the state of nature is to create the social contract, right? So it actually does make sense. It's not, oh, how do we get here? Like it actually, there's a really, there's a really fine logic. Well documented. It almost makes like too much sense because everything, you know, then you you can just justify any good act that someone does towards you as possibly potentially future beneficial to the individual. Right. And then I think this is what you were talking about with the family. Right. Like, then you just view, well, you're really just having children. So, you know, you can be like, be supported in your old age, or it's just kind of something we all do. And um, maybe you just kind of outsource the raising of the children to, you know, babysitters or whatever else, or, you know, who knows? Um, I mean, like the Romans had their whole system of um, pedagogues or whatever, where the, the son is basically a slave until he's old enough. And then, then you kind of like start talking to him and actually caring about him because it's beneficial for the society to continue. You have family, whatever. Um, but yeah, it, everything's in terms of violence and power games. I, I, that's the whole like postmodern ideas on, um, on language is that all language is basically yep. violence as well. So Absolutely. if you say as a Joshua, as a white male, I can't believe you would pass judgment on Black Lives Matter as if you would have any understanding of the, you know, the systemic racism that these people have to operate under, right? And you're just using your your language. I it's it's just violence against all my ideas, right? So there, there, there's no room for debate in any of that, right? <laughs> right. Well, they do it to their own people. I mean, if you're if you're a black person and you come out and say, this is ridiculous, you're also going to get demonized. So the <laughs> yeah, person that say, I grew up without a, like, I was, I mean, I was listening. I don't know if you guys know the Ruben report. Yeah. Ruben. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love listening to him because obviously a lot of his positions are far different from mine. And yet he comes to so many of the same conclusions, but he had on a guy, um, oh, what was his name? Uh, it wasn't Trent. It was he was he was an ex police officer, but really interesting black guy, conservative. Had his come to Jesus moment and was a uh, Christian, and he basically from within explained that this this whole motion is crazy to a very large extent, and he said the biggest thing for sure is the fact that you know most I think it's seventy seven percent of Black people in the inner city, black children growing up, they don't have fathers. And he said, you don't understand how big that is. And I think for anybody that's grown up in a divorced family, white or black, it doesn't matter. Any Mm -hmm. color, any skin, you're going to understand what it's like 
grow up without a father if you've done that and how how uh, impactful the ramifications are, especially the negative ones. And so he argued that. And then he talked about the black on black pressures to sort of stay with the status quo. If you try to do well in school, if you try to get out of the inner city, if you try for a, a good job or anything like that, if you date a girl that's white, you're going to get demonized, not by white people, but by your own people. He said, like, you're not allowed to do it. And he said, and you're telling me, you know, and again, I'm not here to say that there isn't racism because there is. And I'm not here to say that there haven't been a lot of political laws that have been passed, especially in the 40s, 50s, 60s, that intentionally did things to destroy black families, black communities and, you know, uproot and, um, you know, destabilize those things and sort of create a mess. Like there, that is true, right? I, I don't want to come down and say, oh, this doesn't exist. This is crazy. But I agree with the words Black Lives Matter, sure. But I don't agree with the movement behind it. I mean, if you read on their website, one of their principles is to destroy the Western conception of the nuclear family. And I'm going, hmm, well, all the Black conservatives that are coming out against this very movement that's supposed to help them are basically saying the number one, every single one of them I'm listening to without fail, number one thing is we don't have fathers and that's the problem. They all say that. <laughs> Listen, at least 10 or 12 at this point. So, Kellen, I muted you because there was something in the background. If you, if you want to talk, could you just like mute and then unmute? Yeah, sure. Sounds okay, good. Cool. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but anyways, I didn't want to, it, it was a little distracting, so I wanted to get off of that, but yeah, yeah no problem. go ahead. Um, well, I was just, you know, it just blows my mind. Like Josh, what you're saying is just amazing. I mean, like if we look at it seriously, the, the, there is a real blow dealt to children who don't have a father. I mean, because the fatherly figure is such an important role and especially for a male in becoming a male. And, and if we look, I mean, if we look at this, there, there is so much, crime in the inner city. Um, and just statistically a lot more, you know, crime created by black people. I mean, it's just statistically true. And so like the, I think one of the problem is problems are, is that we don't in America, the reason why we're seeing, and this can even lead up to your twenties, thirties, forties, people a friend of mine used to say, if you're not grown up by 21, you're never going to get grown up. You're never going to be I've grown heard up. That. So, I've heard that before, too. If you're, I've heard yeah, if so you're stupid by 21, you'll be stupid, stupid forever. Stupid, that's what it is. Yeah. If you're stupid by 21, you're stupid forever. So the thing is, is like... I'm 22, so now I'm a little I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm on the stupid train already. I hit 21, so... The, the family, if the family is destroyed, then we have serious havoc in society. And that's, it's so clear to see. It's what we're seeing. Why would this movement, why would this movement cause so much violence? Just think about it logically. Why would this movement have so much violence according to it? Well, because they're seeing everyone else, like they're seeing the system as being violent towards them, violently disenfranchising them. And so the only solution in a, in a power struggle like that is to, you know, tit for tat, violence for violence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or, you know, they're trying to just get their point across. Look, they're saying... 
if we just peacefully protest in the streets like Martin Luther King Jr., I was just about to bring that up. This is like this could be farther from like MLK type stuff, or you know, it's it's more like you remember. I, I don't know the whole history of civil rights movement, but you know, like the the Black Panther, Malcolm X. Um, th- there was I could be completely wrong. I, I'm just this is from memory, but they were more towards we need to show them violently that we mean business and we're going to take back our streets and we're not going to be you know segregated or something like you know and the mlk part of the movement was peaceful protest um you know marching stuff like sitting on a, a bus that's or sitting you know rosa parks or going sure. into restaurants that are you know supposed to be segregated don't serve um black people and sitting at the bar right where you're not supposed to do like these type of movements that's way different than what we're you know, looting, rioting, turning, you know, tearing down statues, whatever else. I think maybe that's where and they're not using the Bible and Christianity like Martin Luther King was to justify this stuff because they're they're going to, you know, something that's beyond violence. They're they're appealing to the conscience of America and they're appealing to the, the common God of America. And they're also appealing to the Constitution. That was the MLK original civil rights stuff. But today it's everything's viewed in terms of power and violence. And so you're going to use violence. You're going to use in your face tactics. You're going to, you know, protest in these types of type of ways. I guess what Josh is pointing to, to here, we're seeing the continual degradation into more, um, <laughs> purified, let's say liberalism and, and violent statehood type stuff. Right. Absolutely. Right. I mean, Cause there's yeah. no limit. So mm-hmm. the, there's no limit. To the state there's no limit to the violence that's the difference in the you know in king louis the nice kingdom again the king the pope they were both under natural law under divine law under the law of justice and justice was very concrete and it was elucidated to the point that it wasn't like well that's a vague concept it was very clear what justice was mm. And it, and it worked. I mean, I think that's the biggest litmus test. It worked. And that's the thing. If it didn't work. Well, there's no point in talking about it, but it did work. That's the difference. And again, today, it's the, 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 the state stands outside of that. It is the absolute. So let me press okay. you on that, Josh. And I, I asked this to Nick last week. We were talking about liberalism. Yeah. He was saying liberalism collapses on itself, uh, you know, going against the family, whatever else. I asked, I put it to him, and I think you, you saw part of this. I was there. Yeah. That, um, how do you, let's say, get people to start trying to view things outside of power and outside of violence? And that, you know, how do you get people? And I put it in terms of like, how do you get people to see the necessity of grace to see that man can be something greater than just as Hobbes puts it, you know, animals fighting against each other, man against man. Yeah. Again, another really good question. And that one, I haven't thought about it a lot. So I don't have I don't have a great answer because I just I guess the best thing I could say is I've thought about it a lot myself and it's taken me a very long time just to come to understand tangibly, you know, and again I'm still just starting to get it. I mean, I think it's taken me 3 years plus this summer to finally start to see some of the pieces of the puzzle. So what does that mean then for the average person? That's where it becomes tricky because it kind of reminds me of a problem that Newman had with a lot of Catholic doctrine where it's 
like, do people all need to know all this stuff in order to be Catholic? And it's like, well, no, they don't. And so I guess, you know, I mean, that's otherwise universe universality wouldn't work because there's people that are illiterate people that can't (laughs) understand such complex things like the doctrine of the Trinity. They, you know, not that I can understand that, but at least I can have some concept of it to some degree. Mm. People may not be able to do that, you know? So that's, that's the question because we have so many ways of educating as Catholics, but I still haven't thought through exactly how we do that on a broad, on a broad level, because the social order is so inundated with this liberal mess that, you know, what, what, um, what Jones and Barnes and Imam are writing post-liberal thought, you know, it's thought that's great, but I don't post-liberal action. How do you implement it? How do you change? How do you change society and create, you know, because you could look at the church itself and say, man, church is in such a mess. Like the mass is such a mess, you know, in that it doesn't necessarily denote all the things that, you know, it used to denote when you had the extraordinary form and you could sort of follow along with that and understand that. And so much of the symbolism makes so much more sense there, whatever, 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 you know, it, it's, there's these other ways that we had to learn that, you know, or it's like you go into a church and stained glass windows, well, they don't, they're not that great anymore, but they used to be that which was taught, taught scripture to the illiterate. You know I mean? Mm. So there were other ways in the church and I am just, I just like, man, so what, I guess you build better churches built. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Nick had a lot um, like, uh, what is it? Get married, have children, teach them Latin, build great churches. Right. What, what was That's that? What I was trying to remember. That? that was David Willie's book that he was reading. Oh, oh you was know, homes, homeschool them. <laughs> <You're building laughs> you know, just just keep, keep them, uh, well, you know, like keep them in the loop as well. I mean, I think the big yeah. problem that we, I think the problem that we have today is like, like we were, before you came on the show, Josh, we were discussing how many people actually don't know what the hell they're supporting. <laughs> I mean, they just get oh, so exactly. enraged that they just roll with it. There are so many people in the Black Lives Matter movement that don't even know what the hell they're doing. They're just oh, supporting oh. this thing that like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, if this helps with, you know, civil rights or whatever, then... And I, hopefully this will work, but they don't even know like what they're doing. I mean, seriously, right. like I said, there was this video today where this cop literally was surrounded by all these people because they were protesting and he just sped right through and literally went through them and probably ran somebody over and hit some people. I would totally, I'm okay with that because he had to get the heck out of there. His life was being threatened. Yeah. These people don't know what they're doing. If these people knew yeah. what they were doing, they would do this in a peaceful way. And that's what, I mean, that's, yeah. I was, I will stand by that. I just well, don't think del- that. Go ahead. It's a dilemma. No, I was just going to say it's a dilemma on so many levels. It's just, I don't, I mean, it's hard to solve. That's the problem. It's, there's two horns and you can't, how do you, how do you get out of it? I, that's again, I mean, I'm no expert and I don't have grand ideas. I'm just starting to put things together myself. So let, let me throw another question at you. Um, yeah, go so I don't know if you saw Archbishop Vigano's letter to Trump that came out maybe a month ago or so. Did you get, I didn't, get a chance? No, to I didn't it? read it. I got to read no. it, dude. It's incredible. It was good. We did a we did a podcast on it, but this is something that yeah. I've and I think I put this to Nick too of 
how supportive should we be of Trump and the let's say conservative movements in the U.S. and like where is there let's say a limit to that as Catholics, especially as ones who are you know critiquing liberalism in our whole let's say um, societal structure. Like, is there a limit to your let's say support mm-hmm. of Trump, this movement that's trying to you know reverse at least some of this crazy stuff? Sure. And I think, because I guess the way to look at it is for sure, I think, you know, the Democrat side, the policies of the Democrat side are just completely destructive. I mean, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist entirely, but the more I read about the way in which the Democratic Party is, you know, putting Biden out there and then it just seems like it's the kind of thing that progresses right up to a, a revolution that is very similar. You know, okay, like to put this in better terms, you know, Marx talks about, uh, to summarize Marx, you know, different steps that happen in a revolution. And, you know, the first one would be demoralization. Well, you got that through the schools. Second one is destabilization. We've got Corona and we've got riots and the economy mm. is pretty much in tatters or and completely relying on the government. And those are the first two things and we're there. And that's when then you start to see the transfer of power over, you know, in the third thing. So it seemingly is set up perfectly for something like that hmm. to kind of take over. So in that regard, with that being said, I guess I would say, yeah, I think for now, at least your options are either you kind of support the conservatives and hope they can bail the water from the ship <laughs> Or it's like the revolution, assuming it is actually, you know, going to happen, so to speak. If it happens, it's going to be wild. But I guess the thing is, is as Catholics, in some sense, we have to look at that and say, again, I love America too. But at the end of the day, if it's not Catholic and it's not conducive to the salvation of souls, I can't be that attached to it. You know, its social order isn't conducive to that. And so it'd be very wild to say, I'll just let let hell break loose if the Democrats win, they win. And if they literally go wild and try to create communism, socialism, whatever. okay, that would be insane. But as Catholics, we know we're going to be persecuted. We know pick up our cross. We know that. And so in some sense. I would say, yeah, I would support the conservatives, but I guess I just don't think, I don't think the conservatives are ever going to flip the country around because Hmm. again, they're both operating within a context that doesn't work in terms of Catholic, the Catholic vision. That's, that's it. And so because of that, you know, for example, I mean, supposedly we now have, well, we keep having quote setbacks because the Supreme judges still don't Supreme um, court, man. ask, you know, their votes like, like we would think, but you know, with that Louisiana one recently there, but, um, you know, we, we supposedly could overturn Roe versus Wade, which I don't even know how much of a good that would do, or like, that would just be the ramifications of that would be crazy. Cause like Dr. Jones says in that one article he wrote, you know, it's the sacrament of liberalism, you know, that is, the the source and center of everything they stand for. And if you destroy that, it would just like, like 
you just don't even, I can't quite get my head around it. Who knows what would happen? So we supposedly could have done that with Trump. Didn't happen. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how far you're really going to go towards the right thing. It just is more like avoiding disaster. Kind of. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. You're just avoiding that's, disaster I mean, by, by putting conservatives in office at this point in time. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting, you know, and you're so right. It's like nobody's going to win. It's that. like it's like it's like nobody's going to win because we're like you said, we're operating within a system that does not really abide with Catholic principle. Exactly. So like violence, violence. It's like okay, so I guess you know, like the lesser of two evils. I mean. Yeah, it's it sucks because America, unlike, you know, other countries, is not primarily a Catholic nation. It's Protestant. No, it's a Christian one. Oh, yeah. So like it's. It's like we've already lost, but we haven't lost. It's like minimizing damage. We've lost, but we're not dead yet. We're not dead yet. (laughs) We're fighting the battles, but like, you know, it's. It's kind of sad that it's just sad to me that we've come to this point where, and like I said, the ancient Greeks put it so perfectly, a revolution is valid if it's like violating the religious liberty and justice. That's violating. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Their movement isn't doing that. I mean, I was in I was in Oregon this past like two weeks just on vacation, mm-hmm. and we were going into the closest town, and they, they were people protesting, you know, black, they were Black Lives Matter people. 99% of them, by, way, by the way, which were white. Um, and so what does that tell you? So basically, while we were going, you know, while we were going out to dinner, we had to drive by. And I saw signs that said, uh, you know, defund the police. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, it, literally one, one said murder the police. One sign said that. And I'm looking at these stupid white people that are just just doing this. And I'm like, you guys are such. okay. so you're probably a liberal and you probably don't have any guns because you're a wussy. So (laughs) (laughs) so so basically, if somebody comes to your house and tries to take you out, who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? There's nobody you can call. No, you're going to call the social care. workers. What are you going to what are you going to call your grandma that's 95 years old that has to walk no, no. across the street with a cane? I mean, who, what are you going to do? Helen, <laughs> you, idiots. you played into it. Who are you going to call? You idiots. These people, these people, it, the stupidity appalls me. I, I mean, I, I just, why would you want to defund police? First of all, 99% of the police, the rest of them out there are good cops that are trying, that are putting sure. their lives on the line to preserve your freedom. Sure. They do that. Sure. You put you put these wussies out there, they won't even stand in front of a crime scene or yeah. you know, a, a scene where their cops are, you know, are just they have to use their weapon in the line of duty. These people yeah. are such cowards. I mean, it, it it blows my mind at why somebody would have a sign that says murder the police. Murder the police. Yeah. You idiot. Who are you gonna call when you're under when you're under siege? What are you gonna do? Who are they going to call? Ghostbusters. Um, <laughs> for the third time. No. Oh, right. I it's think, all so backwards. I mean, it is. But again, I guess, I guess it just doesn't surprise me. I just don't get upset. Like, I read it and I go, okay, yeah, not surprised. If there was something else happening, 
Like if Drew Brees didn't have to apologize, they'd be like, what? That's shocking. You know, none of it surprises me anymore. And I think that's an important thing to kind of be able to do is just say, oh, it follows the logic. Because again, I, I think it does of what they what they hold and what they believe in. Um, you know, it reminds me, because Michael Knowles was on the Ribbon Report the other day, had a really great quip. He basically, again, said, you know, historically, white supremacy, yeah, that's a thing. There's certainly still plenty of individual sort of cases of such things. And it's probably, uh, you know, who knows how prominent it is. But he basically said the people in power, again, like the media and Hollywood and all the big businesses and certainly a lot of government to a very large extent, they're all on your side, right? So who, like, it seems like they're protesting someone against a myth, kind of, sort of, you know? And, and I guess you could say, oh, they're protesting against Trump. All right, fine. Say that. But again, I'm just like, yeah, that was a good point. He's like, yeah, so the media are all for you. All the businesses are all on their side. They, every big business in the world now has on their big page, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter across the front. We support whatever. You know, we'll pull out of your state government, you know, your state, if your state government doesn't comply to this whole thing, whatever, whatever. I mean, that's how it always works. So, again, it's like, so who exactly are we, you know, fighting against, um, you know, even with the police? I mean, um, I don't, man, I don't remember his name. It, was, it wasn't Trent. It was like fact or something. But anyway, you know, with Ruben today, you know, he was saying he was, I mean, he was an ex-policeman and he said all of these beliefs about the police are the most BS thing he's ever heard. And the whole police are trained by the institution towards violence and racism. He's like, that is the most BS I have ever heard. And it's not true. He's like, I was a policeman for like 25 years. If anybody knows, I would know. And I don't have a reason to sit here and BS you because if I, I am sitting here and all I'm going to get is a bajillion people trying to cream me and demonize me for and be, call me a traitor for, you know, taking this other side. He's like, what do I have to gain by doing this? Nothing. Why would I do this if it's not even true? It's dumb. You know, I'd rather take my pension. The last time I heard, the last time I checked, I don't really, if we think about it, is white supremacy really a thing? I mean, think about it. Like, I don't, well, I don't really think, do I don't really think it is. Uh, the last time I checked the Pledge, the pledge of Allegiance, there's no such thing as white privilege. And to the republic for which this stands. Define it, because I've heard a billion definitions of white one supremacy. One nation, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Okay, liberty. Okay. It doesn't say it doesn't say liberty and justice only for blacks. It doesn't but say does, liberty and justice only for whites. But does that mean it was? But does that mean how, culturally and sociologically it was a reality? But people say white privilege because they're so triggered that white people are all they're just they're this fancy you know they have all the rights they have all the good things. It's bogus. Like you literally have the same opportunity in many cases as this person. You can do what you want, but it's like. People use that as a driving force for their well, sure. bogus Let's, movements. Let me see if I can make the best of their argument. So the fact, you know, of course, we had a history of slavery, which is not equality of opportunity or anything. And then we have 
here's another little like the late 1800s early 1900s and then up of course in like world war ii with the nationalistic and then superiority and racial superiority and i think going back to darwin with evolutionary stuff evolution was used Uh, in almost all of this type of like racial because once you make the category of our people versus your people and whatever else i mean there's been genocides a part of human history you know racism is always going to be like so also the idea of the white man's burden like the teddy roosevelt idea that you know okay we've come so far with white society and whatever else, it's our burden to raise these, you know, savages and, and other people up to real civilization, right? They And that's one of the things they, they, you know, Columbus and these other people, they were bringing South America and the Americas into civilization. And so that's another, in, you know, instance of seeing these people as inferior, right? We're the superiors, we're the white people, we're the Europeans. We have civilization reality, you don't. You couple that with slavery and, um, and then if you look, I mean, all the way up until civil rights and even after, um, pretty much immediately after slavery was abolished, it was set in place. It took, you know, social, uh, you know, blacks were still uh, seen as second, more of second class citizens in the South, all with Jim Crow laws, all sorts of stuff. Even, you know, th- there were all these just. Yeah, segregation. It, it says you're a lesser citizen. You can't whatever. So that's that's recent, man. I mean, that's going up to 1965. That's really like yesterday in terms of world history. Say, so to make, make so, and then they add this this other part in a society that where you know wealth wealth accumulates and then wealth stays with families or those you know people who have been the system was made for the white people. They've had generations to accumulate wealth. Generations and generations. And one of the, the trademark you know, signs of, of capitalism is wealth stays and wealth increases. So once you get wealthy enough, you can just increase your wealth and that doesn't leave you unless you like screw something up. So you have um, populations which had been uh, kept uh, as second class citizens for a long time. The people who were white, you know, the... the they were able to accumulate wealth, and there's a disparity there that the black people have not caught up to the wealth um, disparity, and therefore uh, are feeling the effects of systemic racism. Those yeah. are like all the arguments there, and and there's a lot of truth in that. But well, then it comes to person, where do you person? like? How do you move forward from there, or how do you address it, or like what exactly do you want to do then? We've given okay. Now right. our rights and liberties are there. Do you want all you know all white people to apologize for their accumulation of wealth based on what they could now judge as being you know bad, um, sure. you know segregation a or person, slavery or whatever? Are they do they have person, to apologize? Should there be a white tax right like to redistribute uh, accumulated you know white supremacy wealth? Ke- so Kellen, so then it's I like what do you want to do with it? Go ahead, Kellen. A person a person is only limited. To what they say that they can't do, what themselves that they say themselves that they can't do. I will stand by that. I believe that. In America, we're given equal opportunity. It's one of our founding principles. You are only limited to what yourself to, to say what you can't do. I mean, come on. Like, I'm, I'm just I'm I'm sick of everybody saying that they're so oppressed when they can do something about it. They can do something about it. That's the problem that we have in America today is that we have people that say that they can't do anything about it because we're so oppressed. 
It's bogus. You can do it. Get out of the shadows. Work. Go for it. You have a capitalistic society where you are given that option. You are given that option, and we can do nothing else but be the best here at the Kellen and Alex show, of course. But we're going to take a very quick break. Oh, I'm so oppressed that I can't do it. We're back. Quickest break in broadcast history. Kellen, please. I'm just, I'm sick of everybody saying in this country, oh, I'm so, everybody's oppressed at one point in their lives. There are people that are. I'm going to take you to task. I'm going to take you to task. If, let's say, in this system, you know, White people have had the longest amount of time to accumulate wealth. You were born to you know, a single mother in the inner city, and you never knew your dad. You were in a really tough environment. Um, your school sucked. You, you could barely make it through. There's gang violence, whatever else. There's pressure not to do good in school. There's pr- yes. Yeah, exactly. You're, you know, uh, so, and then you have, you know, somebody grows up in the suburbs. Their family's pretty much made. They go to a nice school. They're going to get into a nice university. You need a nice university to get a nice job, whatever else. So what are your options in that situation? You could say, and I'm talking about the you know, disenfranchised, disenfranchised you know, um, inner city kid. Well, one of them is, okay, I'm just going to make the best of my situation, American dream. Hopefully it'll work out, whatever. Um, does the American dream really work? You know, The other option is the world... Uh, is set up in a way that is completely against me. And what needs to happen is if they're going to be violent and play these violent games to they get all the money, then I'm going to use violence back and then see if I can flip this whole thing upside down and see if I can profit from it. I'm just, um, what I'm trying to say is that, look, I sympathize with those people, but you are, look, okay, yeah, you can say, okay, you went, you know, you went to a good school. You went to a univer- prestigious university. And there are people that don't have that. What I'm trying to say is like, we have a system where you have the, it's not like we're in a, a communist society where everybody's going to get the same pay. We are in a, a system, a capitalistic society where you can pursue your dream and you can work your way out of that. You can literally educate yourself and work your way out of that. But see, I think that's too simplistic. I mean, I agree. I think Alex, because I would, I would take you to task with Alex in that, because that's the classic American individualism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps philosophy that you're, you know, purporting right there, Alex. Or I mean, uh, Kellen, sorry. And I guess my question is whether or not, well, that's not a question. I guess I'm wondering whether you think, do you really believe that that there's not other factors that would make it incredibly difficult to do that. But who says it's impossible? Well, nobody says it's impossible. Who says it's impossible? That's a good point. Absolute possibility or not? We're just talking about. Well, sure, but I still don't think. I mean, lots of things are possible that aren't probable or by any means simple or easy, and so that's fine but I still think that that's not an incredibly, it's not an incredibly helpful way to look at it. Perhaps maybe it's well, like you got screwed over. Well, figure it out yourself. You know, that's kind of uh, well, that and would it's be not the, to say, and I mean, that's the, like in the political system, right? That's why we want to elect people that can help us get out of these situations. And there's you no, know, I sympathize with those people. They are in those situations, 
But I'm saying like, we're not in a society. We're not like in a communistic society where you don't have the option of doing that. And I can see like people that are, they're oppressed. Okay. But like that doesn't give you license to go enter into a movement like a Black Lives Matter movement where it's violent and there's no peaceful protesting. And so like what I'm saying is, is like you have the option. It's there. It's there for you. Sure. But, you choose but I guess I think your what you're choice. doing is you're, you're, I'm afraid that you're underestimating to a very large degree the difficulty of that option for so many people. Look at, I'm but look at five or 10 or a thousand, but like most of those, uh, because like, I would, I would say, okay, go and listen, go and listen. It all say I could send it to you after this, but it's a great, I mean, that guy on the Ruben report today was so good. And the stuff that he talks about demonstrates how difficult that option is. Like, you may not be in a communist boot camp, but he like when he went through the bullying and the demonizing that he had to go through in order to basically take a path where he could become an entrepreneur and take that option. He said it nobody does it literally because there's a good chance that you could actually like get killed for trying to do that because you're seen as a threat. And as someone that has abandoned the ship, you know, you're seen as a traitor. That's that. So yeah, it's an option. It's a real option, but it's not a likely option. So it's not like, it's just, it's, it's not, you know, it, it's certainly not absolute in the same thing that you would find in, you know, a communist country where, yeah, you literally don't have that freedom, but there's so many factors and impediments that it makes it just so incredibly difficult. And, and that's I'm not, all I'm saying. I'm just pushing that's, I'm just saying. And that's all I'm saying. And that's all I'm saying is that it is possible. That's what I'm saying. Okay. We have that okay. option. That's all I'm saying. Sure. sure. Well, that's fine. Yeah. That is, I just, uh, for me, part of, part of it is like, I hear stories all the time of people that just give up. Like they, they yeah. don't care. They, they give into these things. And I'm like, sure. It's here for you. If you sure. want to do it or not, go ahead. Well, and so here's the other thing. I just thought of this. Part of this comes back to the individualist versus social, not socialist, social nature of man. Because what, what we're talking about here is a notion of society, again, that's in completely individualistic. You don't need anybody. You don't need grace. You don't need God. You don't necessarily need other people. And I know that's not necessarily what you're saying. But I know this is what a lot of people will hear that you're saying. And so this is why I want to clarify it. They're saying, like, it sounds like you're saying that you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, you know, it doesn't matter what situation you're in and whether or not all your cousins do drugs and whether, you know, they invite you to come over three nights a week and do them with you at eight, at eight years old, because this is what this, this guy did. He was eight years old and he got taken to juvenile court because he got busted doing hard, hard drugs at eight years old. Right. And he didn't have a dad or no, no, sorry. So see, he, he did have a dad, but he, it was divorced. So he kind of knew his dad and his dad was actually a principal guy and really did help him, which is another one of the reasons he basically said, 
it was still really difficult with the divorce and all. But one of the big reasons why he did get out is because his dad was actually strong. If that wasn't the case, he'd probably end up like everyone else. And so I guess what I'm saying is so that dynamic right there indicates the social nature of this. Because what it shows is, see, even though his dad wasn't necessarily under the same roof with his mom, his dad was still a principled guy. He said basically when his dad came to the court to pick him up, he was afraid he was going to get the whooping of a lifetime. And he kind of joked. He's like, I was, I was thinking, I hope they keep me behind these bars. You know, like it's better here. And his dad didn't do that. All his dad did was he said to him, um, if you want to be the basketball player in the NBA that you want to be, because he was quite athletic, he said, you're going to have to cut that crap out of your life and take your life seriously. Mm-hmm. And he said, that shook me because I thought I was going to get whooped. He said, but my dad saying that to me was huge. What I'm showing you, is, what I'm trying to get across is the fact that there is a social nature to the way in which we get out of a situation like that. And luckily for this, this gentleman, he had that with his dad enough that it helped get him out of that situation and eventually did turn his life around and eventually, you know, did become a Christian and, you know, did get a job in the police force and did that for, you know, a few decades and that changed his life. But on his own, he basically said, if it wasn't for that, encounter and a few other social encounters I had, I would have just been another inner city case lost to the the streets and drugs and alcohol and free sex and all that stuff with no responsibility. So what I'm saying is while it is in theory possible, it's very like there's very few of us that have enough willpower just to will ourselves out of it without a social community that can help us Mm. do the right thing. It doesn't happen all over Right. The, and, the bootstraps which, pulling up, you need people to help you, you know. Yeah. And and which yeah. I'm also advocating, you know, that's why we need change in society. Right. Like to and it doesn't entail change. let's overthrow our entire system of, you know, yeah. uh yes. governance and everything else. You know, I in um I think it's in Gospel of Matthew, uh parable of the talents, right? I think people kind of just they just say, Okay, well, talents, you get, you know, certain talents and then you you have to make the best of it. But like the real moral of the story. You have the guy who gets ten talents, guy who gets five, a guy who gets one. Um, the one, the guy who gets you know ten makes ten more, five makes five more. The guy who gets one goes and hides it and buries it, and he comes back, and the master's like, "Why didn't you trade with my, you know, my money so you could make more on interest?" And uh, and then the guy who got one says, um, "Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you do not uh, sow and uh, harvesting where you do not." Um, winnow or whatever it was and so I hid the one talent and here it is back to you so he basically calls the master a thief he says look I know you got your money by thievery <laughs> but uh, and, and I was afraid of you and so I went and I hid the money and I gave it back to you and then the master says to him oh so you're calling me a thief if you really were afraid of me as a thief you would have put my money in, in the bank and gotten interest on it and given it back to me you were not uh, fearful. You're a wicked and slothful servant. And then he takes the one talent from him, gives it to the guy who has 10. And, uh, and then it ends with, bind this servant hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you're like, damn, what a story. That, that's not just the story of like the talents, you know, wow, I have this talent. You have that talent. No, it's 
I think it's it's a story of if you get let's say disenfranchised in life, you're in the worst possible place. You can't blame God or blame your existence. Let's say my existence is completely worthless and everything's against me and there's nothing I can possibly do. And therefore it's kind of like um it's a you know it's a spitting in in the face of reality type of uh parable. But the meaning of the parable is even if you only get one, you still have a duty to make the best with what you got. And and then I get the whole the whole bootstraps thing obviously is too simplistic a narrative, but it's even for those in, you know, there, there's a moral it's morally incumbent on you to make the best of the situation you have and there may be certain situations that put you in different things but we're not mankind's not deterministic in that way that you have bad situation therefore you must produce bad results and there's an element of willing yourself right. out of it that has to be present um and I, that will stave I off the that uh that staves which off the whole revolutionary mindset which sure. is what i'm advocating obviously and i right. mean that's something that that's important that we need to have I, I think perhaps, Helen, what what we got a little conflicted on was perhaps I was trying to add to your narrative instead of oppose your narrative. Yeah, no, you definitely, right. it was an adding to that, that yeah. it's, it's not it just your own, because like then it's, a, yeah. it's an individual conception to say, you're viewing people as just as individuals just to say, well, you can just will yourself out of it. Like you, right. there there is, we need to support people who are on you know trying to get them that's why like why aren't we focusing on the single families like single mother households of which you know african-american communities have uh you know the father's because in jail or the father you know leaves and goes, yeah because we have movements like black lives matter which are perpetrating violence and it's hard for us to focus i mean it's just hard for us to focus on that family on real because issues, like yeah. like it real because you have all this chaos going on Gosh, did you notice how, like, when you know there was coronavirus, and then Black right. Lives Matter, the, the movement started, and then all of a sudden it was like Rona was completely non-existent. Did you get that? Did you get yeah. that vibe at all? I mean, that's literally the, what the media does. You know what I mean? Taking uh, well, from taking from Huxley's that. book uh, and Brave New World, right. he he passes by the uh, the College of Emotional Engineering. And the uh, Bureau of Propaganda. And that's what I think the, that's a good description of the media today. <laughs> yeah. Propaganda. I mean, it's such, it's all focusing on what's happening now. You know, what's the big. Emotional engineering. That's what they're doing. You have this virus that's killing, you have this virus that's killing hundreds of thousands of people. And all of a sudden you're going to switch to these riots that are happening. And you're not going to pay any attention to Rona. By the way, which happened when all the riots started happening. According to multiple reports, 21,000 new cases arise like that. And now if we well, look at in how dude, many of Florida, Florida is getting absolutely destroyed. I mean, there's tens of thousands of cases that are rising. ICUs in the hospitals are full. What's going on? Florida man gets Corona. Eats a gator. Out in the wild. Last time oh, I was man. in the, Florida, the only kind of Corona I know of in Florida is those great commercials. You know, here on the beach. You know, Dude, I'm telling you. Hey, the last By time the way, I was in I Florida, think Disney World vibes. opened up today. Disney World in Florida, I think, opened up. Is either today or it's opening on Monday or something like that. It's How opening up go? really soon. Oh. Disney World. I was thinking of Disney. Let's go, let's go dude. Going. Let's go, Kellen. Disney World. Outdoor Orlando, Disney brother. World, brother. Hey, last <laughs> time, I, last time I was in Florida, 
the last time I was in Florida, I got stung by a jellyfish. So Oof. that's my Florida luck right there. But. Where'd you get stung? Miami. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, on your, on your body. <laughs> Like where'd you get stinked? Oh, uh, my body. Oh, on my body. Uh, <laughs> like on my stomach. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, Most of the time, it's like did, on your. Did you on have some? Uh, did you have some peanut butter with that jellyfish? Dude, I was repping the SpongeBob vibes, bro. I was. Dude, Josh, I, I've been missing vibe. the puns, man. I haven't had, I had puns. Uh, at least at least one semi joke, you know. To all our three thousand viewers out there, we are we got about five minutes left. If you got something to say, say it in the Twitch chat. Sorry, I want this peanut. I didn't get to your your question. You said, "What examples of a just revolution exist in history, as in revolutions that aim to change or overthrow policies of a morally corrupted government?" Because there are people the who American say the American Revolution, Revolution was unjust <laughs> and use that to justify what the riots and protesters are doing as noble. I want this peanut? If you're still with us, I did read your. We we were just firing, so I couldn't read chat as much. But guys, if you have stuff to say in chat, please please uh, drop it. Yeah, just revolution. Got five minutes to defend the American Revolution. Who's, who's got it? Americans it getting the getting heavily taxed by the British, getting heavily taxed, being oppressed, them ordering in houses. The Americans said, "We're sick of this. <laughs> we're not going to deal with this anymore. You're taxing the hell out of us. There's no point." So what we're going to do is we're going to start a revolution. And even though we might get beaten bad early in the beginning, we're going to come out and we're going to whoop your butts at the end. And that's what they did. Is that there, there you go. There you go. American Revolution. Came in out one minute. and Can I ask it's American Steel. It's American, American Steel, steel right bro. there. That's what happened to the British. And I'm British. I'm half British. So are you. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. I mean, uh, Clem, killed, Clem, Clem would say there's a different narrative. He would say, screw that. They didn't really want British the bastard anyway. trying to take <laughs> control. I, I ain't I ain't about no queens. What are you talking about? Yeah, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, that's monarchy. Next monarchy. podcast, dude, just on American Revolution. I mean, so many people American don't Revolution. even. Yeah, I mean that's that's another thing. People aren't taught American Revolution or American history, or or if they are, they're they're taught it as systemic oppression and racism and all sorts of stuff. We've had an educational system for you know uh, however many years now that's just totally. Trying to, you know, has been pushing this narrative for forever. Like we've lost universities. The fact that, you know, Franciscan, yeah. you know, we're out in the middle of freaking Steubenville, Ohio, and uh we're we're sequ- sequestered in, you know, the heartland of heroin. And um <laughs> it's fentanyl now. I don't want to be I'll be oh geez. Anyways, indoctrination. But yeah, it's indoctrination that you get at you go to a UC. Or you go to, uh, well, yeah. University of California. We all call it UC. Oh, I thought you meant University of Cincinnati, I was going to say. If you go you to see, University, University of Cincinnati, California. Yeah. By the way, which have some, I mean, sorry to say, I mean, they have some of the best education. Makes Franciscan maybe look like, look potato, like potato chips. chips. But <laughs> I mean, all I, I got know a lot of that, backlash for that. All I know Josh. is that uh, students in medieval studies ain't reading this book at UC. There dude. you go. And no, that's the thing. It's like you don't get I whack ideas you, like that, you know? No. Dude, it's much more boring like, than yeah. that. Franciscans are I mean, but like on a serious note, like we're educated like in a Catholic perspective. That's what's gonna save us, dude. Like it's seriously. Not a perspective. It's but come on, like it's we're literally look, Franciscan compared to UC Berkeley, I don't know. That's li- like Alex said before, it's literally advanced job training. Like it's, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's just, we're given such a better perspective on life 
like literally, I'm just going to say this on air because it's true. My friend who went to UC Santa Barbara, they had basically like this sex conference, like where they were literally selling sex toys and they were selling all sorts and showing how to have good sex and all this and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, really? Like compared, like what we're learning at Franciscan, like Christian marriage, all this kind of stuff. That's so much better for us than learning all of that stuff that we don't need to press onto us. You know what I mean? Yeah. I On that note, I'll give uh, one, one little quip for all the ladies listening, you know, but there's a great code in the canon law, code, uh, canon 1089. And it says that any time a man abducts a woman and tries to uh, arrange a marriage with an abducted woman, it's not valid, but there's nothing in the code of canon law that forbids the reverse. So Ooh. just want to point that out. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Mormons. yeah. Are you wanna... saying you want to get abducted, Josh? <laughs> no, definitely not. But I don't know. Somebody <laughs> might. All the, all the ladies are a podcast. Oh, we'll just drop uh, Josh's address in chat. You guys can. Uh... <laughs> nothing against canon law here. Uh... Valid. That's pretty hey, funny. But, Valid marriage. Hey, but but that's, that's it, hey, but if you like an awesome, if you like a really good swing dancer, that's Josh is the guy. He's better than me, and that's hard. That that hurts me to say that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. He's even I better than me. That one competition, Kellen. I think I think you and Maggie should have taken the. That cake. was no. that was great. You guys, well, both of you, were fantastic. That's true. I mean, well, I I, I can't say that that's true. I mean. I thought we did the, a good the, job. The judges. Footwork isn't the best. Great. Those are the dude swing dances. I, I don't do it, but I love I love watching it. That's one of my yeah favorite things of Franciscan is is those competitions and stuff. They're just a blast. You know yeah, there, that's a lot of fun. I I, I can't wait. All right, big question, guys. Big question: Will there be swing dancing competitions at the good old Franciscan they, University this fall, twenty twenty, the cursed year? They might not even have. They might not even have open cl- or uh, cl- in class classes. So well, you know like, what? Whether or not there's classes, there will be swing dancing on the square outside of Brooklyn Bagels. A la piazza. Oh no, not not oh, piazza. No, like <laughs> square. Oh really? square. On campus close enough. You know, I mean the green square across the street. We go there all the time and swing dance. So all right, Josh. Happen. By now you've probably seen my bet with Clem. Who's who's gonna come victorious? Have you seen my bet with Clem? No, what's your bet with Clem? I, I had three to one odds against that there's going to be all online classes at Franciscan this fall. Okay. So he put up $45. I put up 15. And um, huh? I think he said there's going to be in person. Uh, yeah. Kellen, we're, we're about to wrap up. Uh, he said there's going to be in person. Uh, yeah. So do, who's going to win this Hopefully. bet as our last, Hopefully. as our last thought. Hopefully. Is Man. there going to be in person? I think, I think I think we might get the second coming before then. <laughs> we need it, dude. No, I'm just I'm kidding. Um, I don't even like. Um, well, I want to say that there's going to be in-person classes, but I feel like I feel like it wouldn't fit the narrative of 2020. You know, that's a good point, man. 2020, you know, and the only thing this year that keeps getting better and better, the Kellen and Alex show. Thursday nights from 6 to 8 p.m. That is Pacific time for all you East Coast Tringuses. That's 9 to 11 p.m. Come on. Come on. Let's, let's get right. that West Coast, Best Coast in there. the chat, guys. 
Thank you all so much for east watching. East Coast is the Beast Coast. Oh, I, I think Sorry, it's East, west coast is, is, the best coast, though, east so. is least. Sorry about that. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this edition of the Cal and Alex Show. If you want to join us live, we go live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time at twitch.tv slash Tringus. Thanks for all for listening and peace out.